Hello Space Watchers, I am Emma, senior editor of Spacewatch Global, and this is a new episode of Space Cafe Radio, your radio channel dedicated to emerging trends and live conferences in the space sector. And today, our guests are... Richard Linares, I'm an assistant professor in the Aeronautics and Astronautics Department at MIT. My work focuses on astrodynamics, space situational awareness, space traffic management, and actually computing orbital capacity. Richard, thanks a lot for being here with us. And we also have you. Hill Rao, I'm an assistant professor of economics at Middlebury College. My work focuses on orbital use management from an economic perspective, thinking about environmental policy questions like how should we price orbital use and how should we think about the economics of space broadly. I met Richard and Akil in London at the fourth Secure World Foundation Summit for Space Sustainability. Together, we discuss about uh, an economical and technological perspective on debris and traffic management. These guys have a great dynamic and they really know a lot about the topic. So if you want to hear something originally new about the issue of orbital capacity, listen up. Enjoy. Akil, Risha, the discussion about limiting orbital capacity is extremely interesting. What is interesting is that you both have a complementary approach, Richard. Which are the technical issues that we have to take into account when speaking about limiting orbital capacity? So the two ways I'd like thinking about orbital capacity are in, in terms of an intrinsic capacity. And this is the capacity of physically fit, fitting objects in space and a risk-based capacity, which is a calculation that's more probabilistic and based on things that we don't know. For example, we don't know where all small pieces of debris are. There are some lethal non-trackable debris that we can't precisely determine, and the future evolution of debris and the space environment has uncertainty. So we have to know about both of these notions. How do we define capacity in the case when we precisely know the position of satellites, and how do we define capacity in the case when we include the uncertainties in our lack of knowledge? So it's complicated, as you said. It's complicated, <laughs> yeah. Okay, you have a more economical perspective. What, what do you think about this? What you can add to what Richard just said? So I think that what Richard just explained is a great explanation of the physical constraints that we have in thinking about what can we put in orbit. I think what I'd add to that is that there's also an economic constraint of what is it worth our time to put into orbit? What is it worth our effort to put into orbit? Because while we can maybe fit a lot of objects into orbit, if we find that some of these objects are not delivering enough benefits relative to the cost of putting them there, it won't be worthwhile to put them there even if we are physically able to. And so when I think about orbital capacity, I also think about these economic cost-benefit calculations that we have to do of at what point will the cost of maintaining these objects in orbit exceed the benefits because of precisely issues like these lethal non-trackables of these other debris objects that we don't always know exactly where they are. How about competitive behavior? What does it mean having a competitive behavior when we're discussing satellite slots in space? I think that we can view competitive behavior in orbit in two ways. One is sort of the traditional economic approach to think about competition, that if we have two, say, telecom satellite operators, then they can change their prices and they can charge they can create different products that compete with each other for customers. That's sort of the traditional notion of competition. And that's relevant to space for sure. There's another notion too, though, which is competition for physical space. So 
if one operator manages to claim certain slots, I'll, I'll use the term slots here, that, that are very valuable, that are very clean, that are very useful, they are limiting the other operator's ability to claim those spots or to operate near those spots. That's a different kind of competition. And that's a competition that I think we are not thinking enough about in the public policy sphere. Richard, you mentioned that it's complicated to define the orbital capacity and it's potentially dangerous to just stick to a number because that number can be informative or it can be dangerous if it's taken without taking into account the complexity that comes with it. But then which parameters we can use uh, to help regulators, policymakers to define orbital capacity and regulate it somehow? How can we move? Yeah, so I have a few parameters that the audience can think about, and I'll organize those parameters in terms of the intrinsic computation of capacity and the risk-based computation of capacity. On the intrinsic side, the key parameters is obviously slot size. What influences slot size is our ability to track the satellites and determine their position accurately and the ability for the satellites to control and counteract disturbances on orbits to maintain their slot. Now, technology is evolving quickly in terms of our controllability, but the tracking ability is actually lacking. Satellites do routinely use onboard GPS devices to get tracking capability that can get down to a few meters, but external sources of information are reliant on ground radars and optical sensors to determine the location of satellites. So if we found a situation where operators wanted to be nearby each other, they'd obviously have to coordinate, share potentially GPS data, and share their control laws so they can coexist in nearby orbits. Some of our work predicts that you can actually do that at fairly tight tolerances. And in, in tight tolerances in space, we're talking about a few kilometers. And that might seem like a lot to the audience, but you got to remember that these satellites are traveling relatively quickly, uh, around six to seven kilometers per second. So the number of kilometers that they're transversing in a matter of seconds is large. So being close to a few kilometers is actually pretty tight tolerances given the relative velocities. Akil, who is going to have the right to use space? Are we going to have this issue at some point? I think in a sense, we already are having this issue. When a large operator, a large constellation operator, chooses to put, let's say, 6,000 satellites in a particular region, they are choosing to use that space and unless they are coordinating very closely, as Richard mentioned, with other operators, they are precluding those other operators from also using that space. So in a sense, we're already there. And it's not because of any legal issues. It's because of the physical nature of the resource. Two satellites cannot occupy the same location at the same instant in time. It's not physically possible. And as long as that is the case, we will always have this question of who gets to use which spot when. This is going to happen with the moon too. Yeah, the space is limited. Yeah, I think that question is really important because when you talk about frequency allocation, we can do, uh, you know, I, I think it's called, what is it called? Time sharing, CDMA. CDMA, yeah. Yeah, where we can modulate our frequencies and do a lot of creative technology with frequencies. Electromagnetic spectrum can overlap. But we know that massful particles can't because of the Pauli exclusion principle. Basic physics, satellites have to avoid each other. But in the frequency domain, we could expect maybe there's going to be some technology in the future that's low power that satellites could use to share frequencies. So I think the fundamental limit will always be the physical space in low Earth orbit and our ability to track and control satellites. Yeah. 
What about the idea of zoning decisions? Is this viable idea? Is it a good idea? I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I'll mention something to kind of motivate your point is we do capacity calculations at MIT and some of our in risk-based capacity calculations based on the parameters that we choose to run them show that we can fit a lot more satellites in lower altitudes. And the reason for that is that the atmosphere has a cleansing effect. So if there's debris generated at lower altitudes, it'll decay in relatively quick time. So there's a clear motivation for maybe putting riskier stuff at lower altitudes and put, putting stuff that's more valuable at higher altitudes. And we can talk about this allocation in terms of zoning, and it makes actually a lot of sense from the physics. So wondering what you think about this from the economic standpoint. Yeah, I think some kind of zoning is probably going to happen at some point because of how much sense it makes from a physical perspective. I think those sort of physical logics are hard to ignore. From an economic perspective, I think it's not necessarily a bad idea. I think it's, it's something that we have to be very cautious about and be very sort of forward-looking and mindful about them. Because when we make these zoning decisions, they're not going to be easy to change very quickly. So if technology evolves and it changes the risk profile of a very valuable object or of a less valuable object, it will be very difficult over time to update the zoning laws to say that now you can move it somewhere else. And part of that is going to be because of the physical limitations that there will be other stuff there. Those regions will have been zoned differently. We see this in cities now, cities around the world. You can look at historical decisions that have been made about where you were allowed to pollute, where you were allowed to have different factories. You see this in London. Decisions made 100 plus years ago about where factories go have influenced where residential neighborhoods are today. And they continue to influence the value of these residential neighborhoods. So when we want to think about, again, you asked this question, who benefits? When we want to think about how we can zone inclusively in a way that allows for future generations to continue to get benefits, to adapt to new technologies, we have to be very, very careful. That's not to say that we shouldn't do it at all. No, no, no. We, maybe we should do it. We just have to be very mindful of what we've learned from Earth about the long-term repercussions of these decisions. That's a very interesting point, because what we're doing now, we're setting up the rules that might influence the next 10 generations. Yeah. And if I got it right, just to define it, sending yeah. decisions means that we have to decide who is going to have the right to assess a certain region or not, right? Correct. One thing that's a bit different than the terrestrial application is there are higher orbits, but there are orbits that are stable for hundreds of thousands of years. So it's not a single generation, but these effects could have hundreds of thousands of years of repercussions to humanity. But there are folks that are working on active debris removal. So you could, you know, maybe potentially relieve some of those long-term effects. So yeah, it's a really interesting question because it could potentially last for hundreds of thousands of years. <laughs> to say. And, and again, just, just to be very, very clear, it, that's not a reason to not do it. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, but it is a reason to do it very carefully. That's right. Yeah. With the right amount of data and planification. Sure. That's yeah. okay. Do we need more data? I think we do. I think what we do need in terms of FCC filings is more information. Right now, they provide very simple orbit characteristics. But if you really want to coordinate constellations to operate very closely to each other, we need things like exact eccentricities decentricity control methodologies, what exactly are they using for their control laws, collision avoidance, and, and for the mundane things like orbit raising, you know, when you're doing your check-in, 
how do you approach your final orbit and what sort of strategies are you going to use for that? Right now, FCC filings are, I like to call them like a cartoon level where they just kind of paint sort of circular orbit descriptions and we know it's much more complicated than that. And economically, we certainly need much more data as well. What we know right now in terms of how profitable is a certain satellite, how much does it cost to put a satellite in a particular location is very rudimentary. If you asked me, what does it cost to put a satellite into the 500 kilometer range at a particular inclination? It would be difficult for me to tell you that. I could make some physics-based approximations from the energy that it takes to get there. I could look at some public data about rocket costs, but I couldn't give you the kind of precise answer that I could give you of, you know, in another setting like maybe fisheries, where I could say, this is how much it costs to go fish in the Gulf of Mexico, to harvest two tons of fish in the Gulf of Mexico in July in, of this coming year. This is what it will likely cost. I could tell you that, but I can't tell you that for accessing orbits. If we want to think about efficient zoning principles, if you want to think about how to maximize the value that all users get from these orbits, we have to understand what it costs to get there. And we have to understand the benefits that they get too. We need to know, for example, is a telecom constellation at 500 kilometers really the most valuable use of that region? Or is there maybe something else that is more valuable? And right now we have no way of knowing because there's no place where they need to file that information unless they're a publicly traded company. If their investors are willing to put money in for whatever reasons that aren't necessarily related to the public benefit, we have no way of knowing. And that's, I think, a problem. It's such a recent problem. It's <laughs> everything is happening now and we have to deal with it using the errors from the past and the tools that we have in our hands. So ultimately, do you think that we are going to be able to avoid to reach maximum orbital capacity? This is a simplified question, I realize. It. You're going to tell me, Richard, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's complicated, but maybe not rocket science. <laughs> it, is rocket science. Uh, it is complicated, but I think the research is ongoing, and but some initial results are showing that if we regulate the launches and coordinate the constellations, we could avoid the Kessler syndrome. The issue is if we make decisions now of putting a large number of satellites in certain orbital regimes, we're taking away capacity from other orbital regimes. It's actually close to being a zero-sum game. So we could actually go above the Kessler threshold in some orbital regimes, potentially. But in order to maintain the environmental integrity, we're going to need to reduce it elsewhere. Otherwise, we're definitely going to have a runaway effect. So decisions we're making now can potentially cause this runaway effect. Yeah. From an economic perspective, the limits are what we call a zero profit condition. That there is a number of satellites, a distribution of satellites such that nobody else is going to be able to launch and make money doing it. And that... With the current regulatory structure we have, that zero profit condition is the only constraint that is really going to limit folks from launching satellites before they reach the physical capacity constraints that Richard is describing. And so if we don't do something soon, regulatorily, then we are going to reach that economic constraint because that economic constraint is, it's the only thing that will stop folks. If you tell an operator that, look, there's money to be made from launching these satellites, in some sense, they'd be irresponsible not to launch those satellites. And do we want that? Maybe not. I don't know. But 
As far as the economic capacity goes, we are on track to reaching whatever the capacity constraints are economically. And we will need a lot more regulation or at least thoughtful analysis to preserve that for the future. Physics and economical constraints are in the end the only two that really matter. (laughs) (laughs) The two laws that matter, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Laws of physics and taxes. Fantastic. Richard, Akhil, you've been fantastic. Thanks a lot for being with me. And I hope we will have the chance to discuss about these topics again. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to keep the pulse of the space industry, please visit our website at www.spacewatch.global and subscribe to our newsletters. And of course, don't forget to become a space watcher. I'm Emma Gatti, Senior Editor of Spacewatch Global, your independent perspective on space. See you next time. Ciao. Thank you.